0: Good morning, everyone. Uh, We'll go ahead and get started with the class in just a couple minutes here. But um, there are handouts in the back, as usual. So if you haven't had a chance to pick one up, Go ahead and do that. And um, also make sure that you sign uh, sign in for the class, either now or at the end of the class before you leave. And uh, one thing I want to mention real quick, actually, uh, on the note of signing in, is that uh, one of the reasons why it's good to sign in for Sunday School is that when you do, you're automatically added to the Sunday School group on the loop. And on the loop, you can find uh, you know, digital copies of every handout uh, and the translation and anything else that I ever put out there. Um, All of it is on the loop, so uh, if you ever want those copies digitally, uh, you can find them there. Um, So anyway, I just wanted to mention that real quick. Um, All right, let me go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll get started uh, with class here. Father, we thank You for this morning. We thank You for the Sabbath and for this day that is set aside, especially for uh, the worship of You. And uh, Father, we thank You for Your Word. Uh, We thank You for this particular letter to the Galatians and everything that it teaches us. We ask that You would uh, help us as we read through this letter together to understand what it is saying to us and um, to understand You better through Your Word and also how uh, to apply your word to our lives. Uh, We ask that you would guide us by your own spirit uh, as we walk through your word together, and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Okay, so um, just a quick recap before we jump into today's material of what we covered last week. Last week, we introduced Paul's letter to the Galatians and uh, noted, among other things, that uh, Paul, the backstory of this letter is that Paul founded the Galatian churches on one of his previous journeys, probably his first journey. Um, And sometime not long after Paul left Galatia, where he founded these churches, alternative Jewish Christian missionaries came behind him, apparently teaching that the Galatians must be circumcised and be obedient to the Jewish law, uh, the Torah, in order to be part of God's family. In other words, what Christ accomplished on the cross is not quite enough. You need what Jesus did on the cross. You need to believe in Jesus, but you must also essentially become Jewish. You must be circumcised and you must um, become obedient to the Jewish law, the Torah. Uh, And so, Paul uh, sees this as an absolute betrayal of everything that the gospel of Jesus Christ stands for. To say that Christ and His sacrifice on the cross is not enough, that it takes more than that to belong to God's family, uh, is, for Paul, uh, a false gospel. And so, hence, he writes the letter to the Galatians in order to set matters straight. Uh, In chapter 1, we saw last week, he starts off right off the bat by emphasizing that the gospel is not of human origin, but of divine origin. And this is the basic dichotomy that he sets up from the very beginning of the letter. Uh, Things that are of human origin versus things that are of divine origin. The gospel, he emphasizes, is firmly of divine origin. It is not a human thing. And because of that, it also does not operate on human terms. It doesn't operate by human principles or by human standards. Instead, it operates on God's terms and by his standards, uh, which are specifically grace. In place of human standards, we have God's grace, which Paul defines very specifically in verse four of chapter one as the gift of Jesus Christ for our sins. Uh, So again, grace is not an abstract concept for Paul. Grace is something very specific. When Paul talks about grace in this letter, he means the gift of Jesus Christ uh, for our sins. Um, and lastly, we saw last week that uh, to teach or to believe that God's favor rests on anything, um, that it has anything to do with our inherent human qualities or accomplishments is actually to defect from God's grace. That's how he describes it, to defect from the gospel of God's grace or to reject the grace of God. That's another way that he'll describe it uh, later in the letter. Um, So that kind of brings us to where we're at today. Uh, We also looked a little bit last week at uh, the second half of chapter one, verses 13 through 24, where Paul begins to retrace some of his own biography. Uh, We saw there that he sets up his own accomplishments in Judaism, his past in Judaism, only in order to shoot it down and say it actually doesn't matter, that it wasn't because of my accomplishments in Judaism that God chose me. It was in spite of my accomplishments, in spite of my past, that God chose me. and so that's where we'll pick up today. And mostly today, we're gonna to be retracing that backstory to the letter uh, in, from uh, chapter one, verse 13, all the way through uh, chapter two, verse 14, and all of the events that sort of lead up to the crisis that has erupted in Galatia uh, at the point where Paul is writing this letter. And so a lot of what we're gonna be doing today, I'll just go ahead and say, is, is going to be building up to what is coming next week. Um, Just looking ahead next week, we're actually going to get to the famous uh, justification passages, justification by faith in Paul uh, in the middle of chapter 2, which is really the heart of this whole letter, Uh, and that'll probably be a lot more exciting than the material today, but we have to go through the material today in order for that to make sense. So so that's what we're going to be doing today. So I want to start off just by going back to verses 13 through 24, the end of chapter 24, and uh, spending a little bit of time there making a couple comments about that before I jump into chapter 2. And um, I want to look again at verses 13 and 14 specifically. Paul writes there, "'For you have heard about my former conduct in Judaism,' that I persecuted God's church to the extreme and tried to destroy it, and I was progressing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my generation because I was far more zealous for my ancestral traditions. And uh, I want to pause right there, and um, Nathaniel, if we can transition slides. I want to compare this to another passage in another of Paul's letters, uh, Philippians 3, 4 through 7. These two passages are the two passages in all of Paul's letters where he gives us the most information about his own biography and background. Uh, And uh, there are some similarities. In Philippians 3, 4 through 7, he says, if anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, flesh meaning there again are human characteristics, um, uh, if anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ." He's operating in a very similar train of thought there to the train of thought that he has here in Galatians, and that, all of these previous accomplishments of mine in Judaism mean nothing. In fact, they proved to be a hindrance, and God actually had to accept me in spite of the things I had done in the past, not because of them. Um, But what I want to point out here is uh, is, is how incredible of a thing this actually is. You see, the issue here in Galatia is that we have Jewish Christian missionaries telling Gentiles that they have to essentially become Jewish and uh, accept the Jewish way of life to the full in order to be part of God's family. Here we have Paul, a former Pharisee with extreme bragging rights in Judaism, and he has now become the apostle to the Gentiles who is out there adamantly preaching that actually Gentiles don't have to be circumcised in order to be members of God's family. Um, There's no real other way to explain this other than divine irony. God indeed has a sense of humor to call Paul, of all people, uh, to be the apostle to the Gentiles, to be the one who would tell them that none of these things are necessary. Uh, on the other hand, though, another way to look at it is, you know, God, God also apparently knows what he's doing, uh, because um, who, who better? Who, who could you possibly find better than Paul, the former Pharisee, to be the one to oppose the Judaizers. He comes from the same background they come from. Uh, He speaks of what he knows here. He knows it better than the Gentiles that he's writing to know it. And so Paul, of all people, is actually very well positioned to be the one who tells them, no, you don't have to do these things. Um, But in any case, the main point of 13 through 24, I'll read uh, the rest of those verses real quick. Moving on from verse 14, he says, But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son in me so that I might proclaim the good news about him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but rather I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And I'm sorry, I'm also scrolling the next page, um, then, I, then after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and stayed with him for 15 days, but I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And these things I write to you, look, before God, I am not lying. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Silesia, and my face was not known to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard that the one who once persecuted us now proclaims the faith he once tried to destroy and they glorified God on my account. Uh, So the point, the real point uh, of that whole paragraph is that Paul is again emphasizing that he did not get the gospel from anyone in Jerusalem. He didn't get this from the apostles, uh, but he got it from Jesus himself, as he says back in uh, verse 12. Um, For I neither received it from human beings, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ." Uh, the whole point of that paragraph that we just read is to reemphasize that point, that the gospel is not of human origin, it is of divine origin, and he received it directly from Christ himself. Um, so before I get into chapter two, I wanna go ahead and go off on a, a, a necessary tangent, a side note, um, and just to ask the question real quick, um, what is the big, big deal about circumcision anyway? Um, I was teaching Galatians not long ago to uh, seminary students, and uh, one of my students asked this question, which is really a pretty good question. Uh, why, why is there so much concern about circumcision? Why does this matter so much? And so, uh, I'll say a few words about that. In short, uh, ever since Abraham, you can read about this in Genesis 17, 10 through 14, Circumcision among males had been the seal of the covenant, um, the mark of belonging to God's people, sort of the the right of entrance into the covenant. It was how you became a member of God's people Israel if you were a male. Um, And so circumcision, uh, therefore, came to signify uh, full obedience to the Jewish law as well as Jewish ethnic identity, both of those things at once. Um, By the time that Paul is writing in the first century, circumcision has become along with uh, dietary laws, Jewish dietary laws and the strict observance of the Sabbath. Those three things have become the key identity markers by which the Jewish people separated themselves from the Gentiles. They're the key way that they distinguished themselves. The key ways that they distinguished themselves from Gentiles were circumcision, dietary laws, and um, and strict observance of the Sabbath. And perhaps the, the, the king of those three was circumcision for males. And so what is at stake in Galatians when we hear all this talk about circumcision is not just the act of circumcision per se, but what it really is is what circumcision symbolizes, which is full obedience to the Jewish law for the purpose of belonging to God's people um and Galatians three ten through fourteen as we 'll we'll get to much later, um, makes that clear that that's really what we 're talking about here is full obedience to the law um, so uh Nathaniel, if you can oh you 've already done it great um, so the uh, so in Acts we read about um, you know we read about the earliest days of the church in acts and one of the things that becomes very apparent is that it was initially a huge surprise to the earliest Christians, uh, all of whom were either ethnic Jews or Gentile converts to, Christ- to uh, Judaism. So they were all Jews one way or another. They were either ethnically Jewish or they had already converted to Judaism um, prior to uh, converting to Christ. Um, and so it was initially a huge surprise, it seems, to the earliest Christians. Uh, that when, when the Holy Spirit came to uncircumcised Gentiles, you see, they had never really imagined or considered that God's gift of salvation in Christ, who was, after all, the Jewish Messiah, might be for those outside Israel as well. So while they were happy for Gentiles to come in, they always imagined that Gentiles would have to become Jews before they could become followers of Christ. Uh, who was, again, the Jewish Messiah. You can see there is a certain logic there in thinking that the Jewish Messiah would be for Jewish people. Um, but, uh, so, so it was a huge surprise to them when actually the Holy Spirit came to uncircumcised Gentiles who were no part of Israel. Um, we, can, we can see that very clearly in Acts 11. Uh, this is, of course, following Peter's visionary experience in Acts chapter 10 where uh, Jesus has to sort of smack him over the head repeatedly um, to get him to realize that uh, you don't have to be obedient to the law to be part of God's people uh, and that it is possible for Gentiles who do not follow the dietary restrictions and so forth uh, to be part of God's people. Um, And so Peter has had this experience, and now he has to relate to everyone else back in Jerusalem. What happened we start off in Chapter 11? reading uh, that, now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, those, in other words, who believe that you must be circumcised to be um, part of God's people, uh, criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Um, But Peter began and explained uh, explained it to them in order. Skipping a few verses here, but verse 11. Uh, and behold, at that very moment, and Peter's relating this, three men arrived at the house in which uh, we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. He's telling the story of the first Gentile uh, that he saw received the Holy Spirit here and that came to Christ apart from uh, the Jewish law. Uh, verse 15, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, Who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life." So you can see the sort of aha moment here. Um, It was a big surprise, and not something they had been expecting. But we also have the circumcision party out here, who is not on board with this, and this controversy continues in Acts all the way to chapter 15, where we have the Jerusalem Council, a meeting of the apostles to try to resolve this conflict that has arisen over this issue. Um, and so in the meantime, it seems that this members of this circumcision party have also now come to Galatia teaching Gentiles that what Paul taught them wasn't enough, that uh, the faith in Jesus will not be enough, that they must also be circumcised and be obedient to the Jewish law. Um, so uh, so that's, what circum- that's what all this talk about circumcision in this letter is about and where it comes from. All right, so uh, at this point, we get to chapter two. And uh, in chapter two, verses one through 10, um, Paul begins here to rehearse to the Galatians the story behind these false missionaries that have now come preaching uh, that they must be circumcised. So, so he's going to tell them where this whole controversy started, how it all began. Um, and he says this, I'll read these 10 verses for us. Then after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem again with Barnabas, taking along Titus also, I went up according to a revelation, and I laid before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were esteemed, lest I might somehow be running or might have run in vain. But not even Titus, though he is a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But this whole controversy arose because of some false brothers brought in secretly who slipped in to spy on our freedom which we have in Christ Jesus so that they might enslave us to whom we did not yield in submission for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel might remain intact for you. But as for those who were esteemed to be something, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God is no respecter of persons. Those, as I say, who were esteemed added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that we had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcision, just as Peter has been with the gospel of the circumcision, For the one who was at work in Peter for apostleship to the circumcision was also at work in me for the Gentiles, and recognized the grace of God given to me, James and Cephas, that is Peter, and John, those esteemed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcision. They asked only that we might remember the poor, which was the very thing I was eager to do. Um, Okay, so there's a lot in there uh, as Paul retells this story, Um, and so we start out uh, 14 14 years um, after his first visit to Jerusalem. He's back in Jerusalem again. We're now 17 years out from Paul's conversion, Um, which I do like to point out sometimes that sometimes we have this idea in our heads of Paul, the spiritual giant who um, was immediately, you know, he was converted very dramatically on the road to Damascus and then immediately started writing stuff like this and preaching the gospel um, like mad. And, uh, and actually read closely in the letters. Um, this is Paul's earliest letter. And um, by the time these things are happening, What he's narrating is actually still in the past. We're already there 17 years out from his conversion. Um, By the time he's writing this letter, it's even later than that. Um, And so uh, a more accurate picture of Paul is probably that he was converted. And then he spent many years learning and rethinking everything that he thought that he knew. And then he started writing stuff like this. the um, But anyway, he returns to Jerusalem uh, with Barnabas. Uh, we can uh, we can read about uh, this in Acts 11:25 25 through 30 as well. Um, not much is said about this visit in Acts other than that it happened, uh, and it actually did have something to do with the poor and taking care of the poor, so it kind of makes sense that at the end of all this they ask him to remember the poor. Um, and that was the first, that was the reason why he had come to Jerusalem this time, according to Acts. But while he's there, he apparently takes the opportunity to compare notes with the apostles, with James and Peter and John especially. It's probably who he's referring to when he says those who were esteemed. Um, and he just wants to make sure, he wants to check with them and make sure that what he's been preaching is um, in line with with the gospel as they understand it. Um, They are the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And, uh, you know, and notice that right away the issue of circumcision comes up again in verse 3. And apparently what happens here is that the apostles agree with Paul that Titus, who is a Greek, so he's not circumcised, um, he's a Greek convert to Christianity, uh, they agree with Paul. He doesn't need to be circumcised. Um, He doesn't have to be obedient to the Jewish law. Um, so then in verses 4 and 5, Paul, Paul really begins here to explain what happened, how this whole thing got started, and apparently there were some people who snuck into this private meeting between him and the apostles and, uh, and caused all sorts of trouble, and this is where the controversy really begins. Um, and... Uh, By the way, I'll just note that verse 4 is one of the most convoluted verses in all of Paul's letters, if you're reading them in Greek. Um, It is a bear to translate. Um, I spent more time on this verse than any other in the letter, um, trying to decide exactly what to do with it. And part of the reason why it's difficult is that it's written in sentence fragments. Um, He never really completes his sentence. And he gives all the evidence of someone who is actually very agitated and flustered. Um, these words are you know, flying out very quickly before he's even fully formed his sentence in his mind. Um, so you can see when you read this in the Greek exactly how agitated Paul actually is about this situation, how frustrated he still is. Um, and so what I ultimately did here was I put a phrase in brackets that turns it into a complete sentence, which I think, and is faithful to what Paul actually means here, what he's trying to say. Um, but if you take that phrase in brackets out, uh, you're left with something that, it, it never forms a complete thought. Um, so, uh, so I just mentioned that because it's, it's evidence of, of the emotion um, that Paul is feeling here, I think. As he, uh, as he relates this situation. Verse 5, um, notice what he says is at stake here. Um, what is at stake is nothing less than the integrity of the gospel. Uh, he says uh, that he fought this battle so that the truth of the gospel might remain intact for them. So for Paul, the issue of whether Gentiles have to live like Jews in order to be part of God's family is really the question of whether or not Jesus Christ's death was sufficient on its own, and, and hence, whether or not the gospel is true. Um, but as it happens, verses 6 through 10, Paul reports that uh, this meeting actually went very well. James and Peter and John agree with Paul and Barnabas that Gentiles do not need to be circumcised. Uh, they don't need to place themselves under the law to be part of God's family in Christ. Um, and uh, we read in, in verses 7 and following, on the contrary, when they saw that we had been trusted, entrusted with the gospel of the uncircumcision, just as uh, Peter had been with the gospel of the circumcision. Uh, for the one who was at work in Peter for apostleship, to the circumcision was also at work in me, for the Gentiles, um, and recognized the grace of God given to me. Uh, James and Peter and John all gave me and Barnabas the right hand to fellowship. Uh, so they they said, "Yeah, you guys should keep doing what you're doing with the Gentiles, and we'll focus on uh, the Jewish population. You guys go focus on the Gentiles." So they they they're partners here. They're in full agreement, it seems. And Paul also notice, uh, emphasizes one more time in verse 6, that they didn't add anything to his gospel. Once again, he didn't get it from them. He got it from Jesus Christ. Um, and by the way, sometimes people will wonder exactly what's going on there in verse 6 when he says, but as for uh, but as for those who were esteemed to be something, whatever they were, makes no difference to me. God is no respecter of persons. Um, you know, some, sometimes people wondering wonder, what is he doing here? Is he throwing shade at, at Peter and James and John? Does he n- not entirely like them? Um, there could have been some tensions, but I suspect that what's really going on here is that Paul is living out what he preaches. He is preaching a gospel of grace, which says uh, that none of your human qualities, none of your inherent human characteristics, none of your accomplishments mean anything before God. Um, we are all on one and the same playing field before God. And so Paul is basically saying here, uh, yeah, they're, they're the esteemed pillars of the church, but, um, but you know, actually I don't really care because God's no respecter of persons. Um, it doesn't matter who they are, um, you know. So I think that, uh, so we actually see an example here of how Um, how deeply interwoven into, you know, even his interpersonal relationships, Paul's theology of grace is. Um, And so if we stopped here at the end of verse 10, things look okay. It seems as though the apostles are all in agreement, and everything should be fine. And maybe this could have been the end of the story, but unfortunately it wasn't. Because what we read in the next paragraph is that sometime after all this, Paul's back in Antioch, Syrian Antioch, which was his home church, his sending church. And Peter comes for a visit somewhere during that time. And, uh, and things go wrong. Um, verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before some people came from James, He used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself for fear of the circumcision party, and the rest of the Jews joined him in this pretense so that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not walking in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of everyone, if you, though you are a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how is it that you compel Gentiles to become Jews? So there you have it, the real heart of the matter, Um, and things have uh, reached uh, a fever pitch here, um, uh, right on the heels of the great justification by faith passage uh, that we'll look at next week. But I'll say a few words about this first. Uh, First of all, it's obvious when we read this paragraph that Peter knows full well that God has extended his gift to the Gentiles apart from them placing themselves under the law. That's obvious in Acts. I mean, he was the one who went back to Jerusalem and reported um, what had happened to everyone else in Jerusalem. Um, uh, He was the one who had the visionary experience from Jesus himself uh, to cause him to realize this. And uh, even in the passage that we just read, the paragraph just before this, we see that Peter is one of those who is in agreement with Paul and Barnabas on this issue. So Peter knows full well and that uh, that God has extended his gift to the Gentiles. Um, He knows better. But while he's visiting Antioch, he seems to have pulled back under peer pressure. Some people come uh, from James. Now scholars debate whether they were actually from James or whether they just reported to be from James. Um, But whoever they are, they seem to be members of this circumcision party that we've read about. And, uh, and, and basically, Peter chickens out. He gives in to peer pressure. He caves to the pressure. And, uh, and so he pulls back from the Gentiles. He starts acting again like the food laws do matter after all. Um, and, and again, it's not just the physical action that matters so much here, but it's what the action symbolizes that is the big problem for Paul. Uh, but Peter makes himself a hypocrite here. He was doing one thing, but then he gave in to peer pressure. He pulled back. He does another thing, and he sends uh, a total mixed message to the crowd around him, the heavily Gentile crowd around him. Uh, so, uh, so, and why does this matter so much? Well, two things. Um, uh, one, in doing so, he has given the impression to Gentiles that obedience to the Torah actually does matter, after all. Maybe Gentiles really do have to become Jews or live like Jews first. Um, And secondly, because Peter is so influential, if Peter does it, others are sure to follow. And in fact, they do. Even Barnabas, uh, Paul's close associate and partner, is led astray by what Peter does. And so Paul puts puts a question to him that really drives the point home. And I'll expand it a little bit here. Uh, If you, though you are a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, in other words, you don't observe the the Torah food laws, you weren't until the people from James came, Uh, how is it that you compel Gentiles to become Jews by giving the impression, in other words, uh, that the food laws still matter? That is the question. So what is at stake here? What is Paul so angry about? He's not really angry about food. Uh, the issue here is not food. The issue is something much greater than that, which is symbolized by Peter's behavior. The issue is the basis on which a person is a member of God's family. I had a student um, in one year that, um, one of the years that I was TAing for New Testament at uh, the seminary, so uh, I was in that position of not teaching the classes, but nevertheless grading the papers. And I had a student who wrote in her paper uh, that she laughed at Paul's uh, dilemma here and said um, the issues that Paul's dealing with, um, you know, who eats with who are childs play compared to the issues that we deal with in the church today. (sighs) That prompted me to write a long paragraph comment back um, at... If we if we think that, then we have completely missed what is actually going on here. Um, This is more truly about who is and is not a member of God's family and on what basis is it on the basis of Christ and Christ alone or does it have to do with other human qualities and characteristics such as ethnicity or moral accomplishments? Um, That's the question and that we're left with before we head into the justification passage, which we'll look at next week. All right, we have 10 minutes left for questions or comments. No, thank, uh, thank you. Uh, you probably don't want to talk about circumcision anymore, <laughs> but back then, even today circumcising an adult male was incredibly painful and probably not safe so were they asking people to really take a risk with their health to get circumcised to become christians uh that's a really interesting question um it, it, it was painful no doubt and i'll be honest with you i've i've read plenty about circumcision, but what i haven 't read about um, is the exact process by which it was done in the ancient world, uh, what tools they were using, if they used any sort of anything to sanitize the tools um, and I uh, said so that i don 't know um, and um, maybe I should look it up sometime that would that would actually be worth knowing. but the um, yeah. There, 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 has been scholarship that has suggested, though, that uh, even back then, um, circumcision could, on the one hand, um, be recognized as having health benefits, um, and uh, so it may not have been something uh, that was that was so much of a health risk. They may have been doing something, um, whether you know, involved heating the tools um, beforehand to sanitize them or or what? I don't know. Um, There may have been something that they were doing to make the process sanitary. Um, On the other hand, uh, the concern among the Gentile population, uh, they criticized Jews heavily for this practice, um, but it had nothing to do with safety or uh, medical concerns. The criticism was that it was a barbaric thing to do to one's body, and, um, and it, so there was all sorts of uh, criticism heaped on the Jewish population for doing this. Um, but uh, beyond that, I don't know how much I can answer that, but good question. Um, anyone else? Thank you. Um, it seems to me that circumcision is a male thing. And what does that say about society at that time and their attitude to women? Yeah, a great question. Um, so I have expected this to come up because it's, it's a good question. Um, one of the questions that gets asked a lot is, so circumcision is uh, a sort of um, rite of entrance into the covenant for, Males was there an equivalent for females, and the answer is really no. Um, and so, in the in the Old Testament, the um, probably the most prominent examples of a Gentile uh, woman converting to Judaism, uh, adopting the God of Israel as her own, and, and becoming part of Israel, um, apart from a man, the two prominent examples of that would be uh, Rahab and, and Ruth. Um, those would be the top two, and there is no, there's nothing that is equivalent to circumcision that is mentioned for either of them. It's simply, in the case of females, it's simply that they, uh, they recognize the God of Israel as the one true God, and they uh, commit themselves to be obedient to the law from that point forward. Um, and so, but there's no there's no sort of ritual involved, uh, equivalent to circumcision, involved. Um, and so, in one sense, um, it was perhaps easier uh, for a woman to um, convert to Judaism, um, less painful at least. But the um, but the what I, what I think it also says about women in society at this time. Uh, is that, I mean, so part of the reason for that is uh, for there being no equivalent for women is that in the majority of cases, the religion of uh, the husband and, or the father, um, the male head of household was um, seen as the religion of the household. Um, so uh, so there, that's why there in the first place, there would be more emphasis on a rite of passage for men and not for women. Uh, were primarily, the ancients were primarily concerned with the men because the male head of household was going to determine the religion of the household anyway. Um, So, you know, again, that's where the exceptions become really important, where you have women like Rahab or Ruth who are coming to, um, uh, becoming part of Israel without without a man in the picture. Um, And yeah, they seem to have simply had to adopt Israel's God as, as their own and, um, and, and, and obey the law. Um, now, things like food laws and Sabbath keeping and all that, that applied to women as much as it did to men. There was just no equivalent for circumcision. Um, and, and, again, and again, I think one reason for that is actually the lesser status of women in ancient society, uh, social status, I should say. Good question. Um, Anyone else? Sometimes um, people put circumcision and baptism on some kind of conjury of another act to do between. How does that? Uh, That's a good question. So there, there are parallels um, I think made in the New Testament between circumcision and baptism uh, we find those i think probably most in romans um, and um, it, it, what I'll, what i 'll say is it's a big subject, but I mean typically in uh, in church history uh the parallel between uh, circumcision and baptism has been one of the uh, rationales, one of the theological rationales for uh, infant baptism. Um, uh, in you know, within Israel, uh, infants would have been circumcised on the eighth day. Um, so, as and as infants, um, before um, they you know had a chance to express any kind of um, faith or Uh, intention of their own. Um, And so, uh, you know, one of the theological rationales is that based on that parallel between baptism and uh, circumcision, uh, the same should apply with Christian baptism. And uh, and, and that that rationale is often uh, denied. Um, The parallels are sometimes denied by um, those who take a more credo-baptist or believer's baptism stance. Um, And so if you get a crowd of Baptists and Presbyterians in a room together, um, they can have a really fun time arguing about these things. Um, But, uh, and then you have people like me, I'll just lay my own cards on the table for a second, who are really weird and totally buy the parallels that Paul is making between baptism and circumcision as two seals of the covenants. uh, 100% and are yet credo-baptists. Um, and that has to do with uh, my, my thinking there is that, is that yes, there is a parallel. But um, in ancient Israel, you were in the covenant by virtue of being an Israelite, by virtue of your birth anyway. Um, in, Christi- in Christian faith, you're in the covenant by faith in Christ, uh, not by birth. And so while I do buy the uh, parallel between baptism and circumcision as, uh, as seals of the covenant, um, it doesn't actually lead me to a paedo-baptist position. Um, and that's me, by the way. I know that there are all sorts of different opinions on that in this room. And um, I'm also unlike a lot of my fellow credo-baptists, and that um, I 100% accept the validity of pedo-baptism by those who are persuaded uh, that that's what scripture actually teaches. At the end of the day, I might find out someday that I was wrong. So um, that's that's my stance on that. But I don't know if that actually answered your question. But, um, um, okay, it is 1115. And so we'll go ahead and end there and pick up with uh, 215 and Justification by Faith next time. Thank you all.